Father in heaven, this morning we're just thankful for this day. We're thankful for the refreshment of rest and nourishment. And we just pray now, as we've already partaken of the physical nourishment and even some spiritual nourishment and meetings that have already transpired, that you would continue to bless us with your presence, that we might have knowledge and understanding that would result in wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we're going to move to trace elements. Does anybody have any questions about what we've gone over so far? Okay, so t this session we're going to talk about the trace elements. This is a whole a host of them. These are, these are elements that are used in small quantities. And one of the nice things about, well, one, first, first of all, one of the, the sad things about this is that these are, are widely ignored in conventional agriculture and even in organic agriculture. And, well, to tell you the truth, in all, every school of thought in agriculture, they're largely ignored or minimized. But these, these trace elements, when you get all of your major elements where they need to be and you start bringing these trace elements up to the optimum, you can't bring them up to the optimum levels until you have these major ones in, in order, particularly calcium. Uh, but once you start bringing these trace elements up to their optimum levels, that's when things start significantly changing. That's when you start getting the elimination of diseases and pests and weed pressure and those type of things. Um, you will start getting those things as you move along, and when we look at um, when we look at insects, pests, and diseases, uh, we're going to look at how that progression takes place, the steps that happen that, that bring you to that place where you have functional immunity. Um, so let's just jump into it. Uh, most of these are cations. Again, they're positively charged metals. Uh, there is one anion. It's the first one. Where we got, there's actually two anions we're going to cover. First one is. is um, is boron, and boron is essential for cell wall integrity. It keeps calcium mobile, and an analogy that a lot of uh, people who talk about this give is that calcium is the is the truck, and and boron is the driver. In other words, you have to have the boron to keep the calcium mobile. And remember, I said that calcium is actually the element that carries everything else into the plant. And so you can see the boron is essential in that, in the role of helping to make sure that everything is, is um, getting done that needs to be get, gotten done. It's uh, involved in flower set and the translocation of starches and sugars. You have to have it around when you're starting to move the, the sugars, the, ph the photosynthase, into the fruit or the seed, either one. And, and uh, if you have it or you don't, it's going to determine a lot of uh, the fruit size and the quality, a lot of interior problems in fruit are a result of a lack of boron um, because there's not proper formation. Sources of boron are sodium borate. It comes in different percentages. It's all the same stuff. It's just a matter of how much water is with it. It's a mine product and so conventional, organic, whatever, it's the same material. Uh, so this, this stuff that's the easiest to get is borax, or borax, I'm sorry, borax, borax in the grocery store, in the laundry section. You can go to Walmart or the grocery store, go to the laundry section and buy borax. Uh, borax. <laughs> I'm having a hard time with the borax this morning. Um, it's about 11% boron. There's uh, a 10% calcium sodium borate that has calcium with it. it. It slows down the release of boron, and boron is a highly soluble element. It doesn't stick around and, unless it's built into something. And the calcium sodium borate, which is a 10% boron material, slows that process down a little bit. And so it, it, it lasts a little bit longer than the, uh, the full sodium borate materials. 
Um, there's a 14.5% and a 15%, and then there's a 20% they call solubore, which is typically used for foliar applications. Um, and in most cases, uh, you, they're in most cases for people because they're not in a position where they have adequate boron levels, foliar boron is a great way to offset the, the lack of it. And um, the catch with boron, though, is it's, it's highly toxic. It's a, phyto, it's a phytotoxicity, though. It's not a persistent um, toxicity. And uh, in essence, if you spray it on or you apply it and, and rates higher than four actual pounds of boron to the acre, you will kill things. It actually used to be used as a weed killer because you could spray it on at these high levels. It would kill the weeds. Um, and then it would, you know, integrate into the soil and or leach through and, and it wouldn't be persistent in um, causing a problem, a toxicity problem later. It's not used for that anymore. Borax is used actually to kill ants and it's, it's a, a bait for, for killing them. They overeat it. Um, I said at four actual pounds to the acre. Yeah. I never recommend more than two unless I know the grower really well. And I know that they're, they're careful about their application. Because what happens if you overlap four pounds? How many do you have? Eight. What did you do to the area you overlapped? You just killed it. <laughs> so if you do two pounds and you overlap, you have a little area of overlap, well, you're not going to do any harm. If I know a gr I put four pounds, well, I don't most of the time. If, I, if I'm really bad, I will. But I'm very careful about not overlapping. And the way my... my the way I do my applications, my rows, my pathways are where the overlap would happen. And so if it happens in the, in the pathway, it's not going to kill anything. Um, what I usually do, you can put an application of two pounds of actual boron. If it were 10% boron, that'd be 20 pounds to the acre. Uh, of two actual pounds of boron, after several good rains or several irrigation cycles, you can go back and put another two pounds on because it's now integrated in and, and then you can go back and, and that's usually what I recommend if a grower want, needs to put more on in one year that they, they do it in, in uh, two applications uh, and I usually don't do more than that but if you, even if you do those two you can also do foliar applications up to about four times a year up to about a pound of total boron um, with something like solubor and that's especially you, would, you, you will notice the difference especially if you're growing fruiting crops, at that, how that additional boron, if you're deficient in it, and most people are because it's, it's highly leachable, the difference it'll make in, in the, the quality and the size of the fruit, having that extra boron there. You can actually, the other source is boric acid. That's actually the form that the plant uses it in. The reason that sodium borate is, that the boron is toxic in the sodium borate form is because of the sodium, not the, not the boron. And so you can actually use boric acid. I'm not, until you have a really good working knowledge of this, I don't recommend you do this, but you can actually put quite a bit more boric acid on because what the plant will do, you can foliar apply it, and what the plant will do is it'll just dump whatever it doesn't need into the soil. And so you actually provide whatever the plant needs and everything else it just dumps into the soil and gets rid of without any toxicities. Um, but it's not the common way of being done, but the the more knowledgeable growers are actually using boric acid as a foliar rather than um, the sodium borate. Well, you can still put too much quantity on. You can still, if there's a certain volume of boron, it's not a, as hazardous, but you, you can put more at one application. For example, if you were putting 
you usually don't put more than about one and a quarter pounds to the acre of, of soluble. You can put um, five pounds of boric acid and uh, you're actually getting more material on but it's not, it's not hazardous to the, to the crop. Most growers are terrified by that because um, they know uh, plenty of growers, particularly fruit growers and vegetable growers who know how important boron is. Um, unless they have a working knowledge of it, they're terrified of that idea because they know how toxic boron can be. And they've, they've probably a lot of them experienced killing things because they got overzealous with. If a little's good, you know the, the admonition, if a little's good, a lot's better. What we're going to talk about today, that is not the case. <laughs> in fact, it's not the case in, in any of the things we've talked about. Balance is, cr is the appropriate, and moderation is the appropriate way to approach it. Yeah? In a small application, how much boric acid would you have to calculate it down to how many square feet it is. So, for example, if you were going to put five pounds of, of boric acid, but the other third thing I should say is boric acid is hard, harder to get. It's used in hydroponics. But it's, it's, it's harder to get than the sodium borates are. Um, but you, what you would do is you would take, if you're going to put five pounds on an acre, you would have to take a square footage of an acre, which is 43,560 square feet, and you'd have to divide, figure out how much, what percentage of, of your square footage is the percentage of the acre. And then you would, you would multiply or divide whichever way you decide to do it, um, the five pounds by that, to get the amount you would need apply to whatever whatever square footage it is a half acre or 20 by 10 garden or well I'm saying you could when I say actual boron I'm meaning the actual total amount of the element boron um, when I'm saying applications I'm, I, I'm doing it both ways so because the how many pounds would it be if it's a 15% material as opposed to if it's a 10% material it'd be about 14 plus pounds if it was 15% material it'd be about if it's a 10% material it'd be 10 pounds I mean 20 pounds, sorry, so of the material. Then you can calculate it out. Yeah. So, so borax equals sodium borate, is it? Yeah. 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 So for people with small gardens and everything, it, it, the only downside, most of the commercial products come as a pelletized material. If you've ever seen borax out of the grocery store, it's a powder. And so the easiest way to apply that is just to dissolve it in water and then apply it uniformly over whatever the area is you're going to apply it. If you're trying to spread it over a larger area, pelletized material where you can broadcast spread it is, is a lot easier to do, but you can use it. They dissolve too, so you can dissolve those in water if you want to and spray them on. If you have a sprayer unit and it's easier to, to apply it that way, then you can dissolve it and spray it, to spray it on. But uh, most commercial growers are, or, or larger growers are combining materials and they're spreading them all at the same time. I don't actually do that. I want everything to be uh, accurately applied, so I apply everything separately. It's a lot more work, um, but I, I want to make sure that I have as uniform of coverage as I, I can get. I'm doing the maximum that you can do almost all the time. And when I say the maximum, some of these numbers that I represent to you, some of them are, are certain. They're fixed. Others are the numbers that will hold up in a court of law. Okay? And what I mean by that is you could do something differently, but if you killed your crop and you took me to court, I could say, well, this application appropriately applied would not do that. Could you do more than that? You can. But there has to be a lot of intelligence up here about how you do it. You have to know what the conditions are 
in order to, to be more aggressive with, with cer certain of these materials. So, so sometimes it, with, with boron, like I said, you can apply four, but I wouldn't, rec yeah, I usually don't recommend more than two. That way if somebody overlaps something, then it's not gonna kill it. And uh, I'm not gonna get in trouble and you're not gonna be unhappy with me. <laughs> you're not gonna be losing crops. So the excess, oh, okay, I'm not on it yet. So those are the two materials. Boric acid, like I said, is, is used largely in hydroponics because it's the, it's the form that the plant actually utilizes it in. It has to be converted to. Uh, and, it, and it's partly because it's not converted to that form that it it's partly causes it to be toxic as well. Deficiency symptoms. Boron uh, is not mobile. And uh, so your symptoms are going to be, well, it's involved in the new growing tips, whether it's the new shoots on the plant or the new roots on, in the soil, with calcium. Calcium is required with boron for cell division. And so the deficiency symptom when you're lacking, this is going to be true, remember with calcium it was the same way, you're going to have your growing tips dying back. And then the plant will try to put suckers out if you ever had tomatoes and, and you don't have adequate boron and calcium. Um, and the growing tips start dying, the plant starts suckering like crazy out the sides, it's because it's trying to get a gr new growing tip going. Um, and then usually they die off too because there's lack. Um, internal, internal stem disorders and even fruit disorders. If you've ever ha had broccoli from the store and you cut it open and there was a hollow section in it, yeah. it was boron deficient. You get these symptoms in, in uh, beets where the, you got the black rod in the middle, um, you get hollow heart in, in uh, potatoes. Um, internal, internal that the cell structure is not, wasn't built right, or there wasn't adequate to build it right, and so you have these kind of problems in them. The excess is a phytotoxic reaction in death. Uh, thankfully, it's only a temporary reaction, so um, it's not a persistent, it's not a persistent thing. It's usually, I usually use a soil test to tell me where, where my conditions are before I start. Now, one of the factors that will affect this is water availability, which we're going to talk about a little bit later today, is um, calcium has to have water to move in. It won't move if the soil's dry. And so, um, like even blossom end rot from the lack of calcium, it could be not that you don't have enough calcium in the soil, you don't have, a, you don't have good, water, good water conditions. You don't have good capillarity in the soil, and so you're not, there's not, the calcium is not moving to the roots. The roots have to go and find the calcium is largely what it is. But the calcium needs to be able to move in water, and once it's too dry, it won't it won't move. And if the roots are not interfacing with with it, then uh, you don't have enough, and that can lead to that. But it can be either one of them, um, and so it, it can be a little <coughs> bit challenging to know. Just one of the things you can do is just do a foliar of boron and see what happens. I usually try to do them separately. I do a I do a leaf analysis now, but sometimes I'll just do it if I know what my soil test is. I know I have adequate calcium in the soil, but I know that the boron was kind of limited. I'll, then I'll evaluate, was my water conditions okay? And then I'll do a foliar boron. And, and most of the time, if it'll, it'll come out of it because it is boron. But sometimes it is calcium and the, the, the two, so. And what happens is if you're boron deficient, then you don't have the calcium mobility and that's why you get the dieback. So it's, it's a, they're connected to each other. Um, just a word of caution to any of you who grow legumes beans, soybeans, any of the legume crops, they are luxury consumers of boron. And so 
this is a situation where I would not recommend putting four pounds of actual boron on. I would stay with it. That's why I usually just stay with the two uh, pounds of actual boron. If you put that much boron on, they will luxury consume it in the seedling stage. Now, if they're up and growing already, they won't. But in the seedling stage, they'll luxury consume it until it kills them. And so you might be all excited about getting your boron level up, put that four pounds out and go out and plant your green beans. They come up and a few days later they're all dying. It's because they just gorged on, they just gorged on boron. And the boron wasn't integrated into the soil quite yet, completely, and so they just, uh, they clearly ate themselves to death. Okay, next one is iron. And the roles of iron are, uh, they're part of many enzyme systems, a lot of enzyme systems, and they're required for the chlorophyll formation. They, they actually are part of the enzyme system that, that builds the, chlor the chlorophyll. Um, so if you don't have the iron, you don't build the chlorophyll, you don't get the photosynthesis, the plant has problems. Um, the sources, I'm, I only have one source here, uh, ferrous sulfate, ferrous is just a, the Latin term for iron, uh, ferrous sulfate 21 or 30 percent. You'll see on the market um, iron oxides, and they're cheaper, and they're 50 percent iron, so there's a higher content, but you'd be basically wasting your time putting them on because they're so tied, they're so bound up as the oxide that they might release in a few years. And if your goal is to get your iron levels higher, upper where they need to be, you need to use a soluble source. The 21% is a um, pentahydrate and the, um, let's see, you didn't get it right here, a pentahydrate. It's just a matter of water. How many water molecules are combined with the, with the ferrous sulfate? And the 21% has wa more water molecules, that's why there's less iron, and 30% uh, has uh, less water molecules. So the 21% is a little more soluble, the 30% is, is a little less soluble, but, and the 21% is usually kind of a blue-green color. If you're, you're buying it, it's kind of like a blue-green color. The 30% is kind of a whitish-gray color. The other two, the oxides, are always going to be red or black. Um, it's like rust. You're like putting like you're scraping the rust and grinding it up, and that's basically what it is that they're trying to sell to you. It's cheap, but it's um, it's not very useful. But you said it will release over a few years. Oh yeah, the better your soil system, the more likely that you're going to get it eventually. So I mean, if you if you want to apply it as a long-term corrective, uh, that's okay. But if you if you're needing to correct within the you know a few years, um, to get things where you need them to be, it's not the it's not the source, so. Yeah, if you have, if you, the, 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 if the biology in the soil, if you have good soil, some of those, some of those uh, old time recommendations, they really do work. The problem is our conditions have deteriorated since then. And so they don't work as well as they used to. But yeah, that's what you're doing. You're just providing iron out of the, out of the nail from the rust. It doesn't, it doesn't really affect the plants growth-wise. What it'll affect is, is how much iron is there in relation to manganese. So it should and be an imbalance. Well, over time, it might, it might, it, what, what might happen is a lot of it will just tie up in the soil. I, as long as you have all of these other things there in balance, it's going to control how, how, um, um, how the elements are expressed. And so it's really an issue. You know, a lot of people who have problems with rhizome grasses, particularly quack grass and stuff like that. It's typically in high iron soils, and they like high iron soils. 
And the best way to control that is to have balance, your ba major cations balance, because calcium will control it some, but also to bring manganese up to its optimum level to offset the influence. They, they work kind of hand in hand with each other, but iron needs to be a little bit more dominant than the, than the manganese. But the closer you can get the manganese to the iron level, particularly where I am in Kentucky, we have really high iron levels. And you, it's really tough to get grasses out of your garden. They, they just want to proliferate. It's because of those high iron levels. But the more balance you get it, the less, the less um, expression those, those grasses have as a result of that. There are, other, uh, there are other sources of iron that come from industrial byproducts and all kinds of things like that. And I usually, if somebody says, hey, we've got this stuff coming out of the steel mill over here, this slag or whatever, can I use that because I can get it for free? Well, we have to you know, evaluate you know, what, are, what, are, what else are you getting with the iron? And is it, can you handle whatever else you're getting with the iron? Or do you want to get whatever else you're getting with the iron? So there are other materials. This is the, this is the material that I know, if you apply it, will work will effectively build in your soil. Now there are some cases where there's not enough iron or there's too much calcium in the soil and it takes a while for this to, to express itself. So I have had situations where we applied iron up to 400 pounds of the acre of uh, ferrous sulfate and nothing showed up. I, this happened to me with manganese out, actually out in Colorado where I kept applying the manganese, applying the manganese and they tell you that, that this is an interesting conundrum to show you how conventional wisdom is not always correct. Um, that supposedly when the pH goes up, iron and manganese are more difficult to get. They're, they're easier to get when the pH is low. That's why they, grew blow, that's why they grow blueberries in uh, acid soil because the, the, the thinking is they need a lot of iron and manganese and iron and manganese are more available in a low pH soil and therefore they get it and that Assumption comes from the fact that they found blueberries in the, the pine barrens of New Jersey and Michigan, which are incredibly poor fertility soils anyway. So they ha those conditions had to be in order for them to even get any iron at all because there was hardly any there. But if you're in a complete and balanced fertile soil, you don't have to grow it that way. If you have adequate iron, you have adequate manganese, um, they, they grow better. But what happened to me in Colorado is my calcium was too low. I was on an acid sandstone formation. It was too low. And I was applying manganese and it wasn't showing up. It just wasn't, it was like, I, in fact, I called Neil Kinsey and I said, you know, what's the deal? Have you ever had this happen? And he said, yeah, we've had it happen. And his answer was, and I had to correct him on it later, so see, sometimes a student can, can instruct, uh, teach the master as well, because um, he just hadn't thought about it that way. My calcium levels, when they got up to where they needed to be, all of a sudden the manganese showed up because the biology in the soil was now higher functioning and it was actually making it avail available. It didn't go anywhere, it was there, it was just, it wasn't active. And so as the pH came up, the opposite of what they tell you should happen in order for you to get more. My manganese levels actually came out of hiding and became available. Um, so it's important to bring it all together because we can, you can pile on and pile on some of these trace elements and they just, they're, they're not, they're not being effective, and it's because your major, that's why I said your major elements need to be um, corrected before you, before you start really aggressively ad addressing the, the trace elements. Okay, uh, the deficiency symptoms are uh, intervenal chlorosis on the younger leaves, it's immobile. Again, 
I have a chart I'll bring down here if anybody wants to take a picture of it or write the notes off of it. And kind of, it's a flow chart that shows you symptoms that start in the older leaves, symptoms that start in the younger leaves, and then the, what happens and how you narrow it down to which element it is that you're, you have the deficiency of. But iron is immobile, and so it's going to show up in the younger leaves first. And uh, it's intervenal chlorosis. The, the, the veins of the leaves will stay green, but in between the veins of the leaves will, will um, be chlorotic. They'll lose their color. Yeah, well, if you're deficient in iron, um, that you would need to apply iron. Yeah. And if you've got an actively growing plant, you may want to foliar apply um, iron. In that case, you would use the 21%. It dissolves a lot better than the 30%. Um, or you can get an iron chelate. In the case of a, if you're applying it foliar, an iron chelate might work more quicker more effectively, but either one, either one would work. Um, the excesses, there's no known symptoms. Nobody knows what the highest levels of iron are. That it, it doesn't seem to adversely impact um, things, or at least nobody really knows that it's adversely impacting anything. And you, get you can get some pretty high iron levels in some places in, in the world. Okay, manganese. Manganese and iron work hand in hand. In their processes, it also acts with iron and chlorophyll formation, speeds seed germination and crop maturity. If you want to get your seeds out of the ground, make sure your manganese levels are good. And if you want them to uniformly come out of the ground, make sure your manganese levels. Have you ever had crop come out of the ground? Some comes up here, some comes up there, and eventually it all gets there, but some of it's a week behind the other. Um, manganese is, plays a role in that. And ultimately, here's a reason you, here's a, here's a plug for, for open pollinated and uh, the quote heirloom seeds. If you ever want to change the epigenetic deformities in those seeds, you're going to have to grow your own and save them. And one of the things that happens when you grow it on a high manganese soil and you, you, you produce your seed that way, when you put that seed in the ground, it'll come, in, it'll come to life quickly because manganese actually initiates the charge in there that gets everything moving. But if you want to, like I said, if you want it, if you don't save your own seed, you're going to get whatever epigenetics the seed producers is giving you. And uh, a lot of that's not the greatest, so. Well, that's what Alan White means. It's like electrically conveyed to the seed. Yeah, I think that's what it is. But like I said, you, if you want to get, that when, it, when it says earlier crop maturity, um, you're just getting it out of the ground, and it's growing faster. If it sits there and it takes, the difference is what if it takes a week to come up or it takes ten, two weeks to come up? You just lost a week of uh, on maturity just in that, that alone, let alone the growth time and, and whatever role the lack of manganese will have in chlorophyll formation and the photosynthesis that's necessary as a result of that. Um, it helps in the uptake of other nutrients. Uh, stalk strength, it's the other, the other key to stalk strength. Remember the first one was potassium. The second key to stalk strength is manganese. Third one is copper. We haven't got to yet. Um, it also moderates the function of potassium. I didn't put that one on here, but um, it also plays a role in a, a balancing act with potassium to make, to, it kind of directs potassium where it's supposed to go, if you want to put it that way. Sources, manganese sulfate, 32%. Again, this is a, a hydrated sulfate form. You can get manganese oxysulfates that are like 28%. They have demonstrated because they grind them. If you ever do use an oxide on these, just make sure they ground it to a really fine, fine 
um, powder, even if they built it back into a pearl or a pellet, because then you have the surface area for the, the, for the microbes and, the, and the, the soil chemistry to work on uh, so that you'll get release of it. So I didn't put manganese oxysulfate on there, but I have used it with growers, and it has demonstrated its ability to, to work in most cases. In some cases, it's not as, not as um, effective as the manganese sulfate, but manganese sulfate will always work um, because it's in the hydrated sulfate form. One of the things I'm not putting on here are chelates. Does everybody know what a chelate is? Where you bind it in an in a organic molecule. You're basically binding it on an organic molecule, an organic molecule, and carrying it in that way. That's actually how the plant prefers it. But one of the reasons I didn't put it on here, and a caution I want to share with you, is some of the, some of the, the, uh, the carriers, the organic carriers, like EDTA and stuff like that, they're now genetically uh, engineered. And so you, if you don't know whether it's a genetically engineered carrier or not, um, I would suggest that you find out if you're going to use a, a chelate. Like Larry's going to tear, it's all over the place. <laughs> what? Well, they use, they use the same carriers for a lot, most of them. Yeah. Hmm? You'd have to ask whoever the manufacturer is. Is this a, is this a genetically engineered um, chelator? And hopefully they'd tell you. If they know, sometimes the people you talk to don't know themselves. They just, they buy it from a supplier and, and so they don't even know. You have to really be conscious of everything you're doing anymore in life because there's a lot of ugly things that are being slid in here and there and there just, you know, under the radar. Okay, the deficiency symptoms are intervital chlorosis, again. So how do you tell the, the difference between that and iron? Because the, the veins will stay green, and in between the veins will, will be chlorotic. The difference is you'll have small, small, you can have small necrotic spots. That's dead spots in the leaf. And another thing that I've noticed with, um, with manganese is that it's not a uniform, in, be, in, in between the vein, it's not a uniform paling or cl chlorosis. It'll kind of be a modeling type of chlorosis where it, it, it pales out like in little circles. And that's where you get the necrotic spots first because those, those spots die first um, in the leaf. And dwarfing, you just you don't get the kind of growth, growth that you need. Excesses, inhibition of calcium and magnesium uptake, uh, potential oxidation of iron in the plant. Here's, a, here's where you have, to, you, you have to be knowledgeable of how these, these elements interact with each other. If on your soil test, on the model that I use, now I can't speak for any of the other models because they use different analytics. If the manganese level ever goes higher than the iron level, it will oxidize the iron in the plant. Now, if you were to take, and so you would have iron chlorosis going on, and you would wonder what's going on, my soil test showed you know, I should have had enough iron. You take a leaf analysis and it shows you have enough iron. But it's not functional. It's been oxidized in the plant. And while it's in the plant, it's not functional. And so that's what happens when you have, a, when you have more manganese and you have iron. They work very closely with each other, but iron needs to be dominant of the, the manganese. 
It can only be by it can only be by a slight amount, but the same is true for um, potassium and sodium. You, if sodium ever goes over potassium, then you start building potassium in, or sodium into the tissue, into the cell walls, and and there's problems that can come along with that. You don't want to have. So, did you have a question? Okay, the next one is copper. Copper's roles. Oh, I should should back up here. I've, I didn't I didn't I haven't been sharing. Let's go back to boron. What what how much boron should you have on a soil test? At least the soil test that I do. You should be how much should you have? It varies depending on your CEC, but anywhere from one and a half to two parts per million. Parts per million. If you if you want it in pounds, you multiply it by two. So, um, two uh, three to four pounds of actual boron in the in the soil. Not much in a two million pound. Um, plow layer of soil to have just four pounds, but that's all you need. And then um, iron, it ranges anywhere from three, 300 to 360, or you could say as long as you have 200 and higher, you're okay with iron, 200 parts per million. I try to, uh, try to shoot for 300 just to sure, be sure you have the, the insurance there that you have adequate. But if you have 200 or higher, you're generally going to be fine. Manganese um, would be, as long as you have 100, you should be okay. 100 parts per million. So if you want it in pounds, just multiply it by two. And you'll have how many pounds it is you actually want in it. Um, I actually shoot for quite a bit higher than that. That's why I have the iron higher. I shoot for 300 to 360, because I'm going to push manganese to 200 to 240 parts per million. The wheat growers in England and, and um, Germany that have those levels of manganese grow 200 to 250 bushels of wheat to the acre. Uh, if you know anything about how many bushels of the acre that are typically produced, it's, it's about half that or less. Um, so there are some growers that do higher than that. They grow the old varieties of wheat, not the mutated new varieties that are all grown, but they grow the, the short things. Have you ever, it's amazing to me. I was out walking. I was delivering a high tunnel to someone. And I was out walking in the wheat field next to them, and the, and the wheat was just that tall. had a head on it. It was only about that big. And I said, is that the way that's supposed to grow? And he said, yeah. What's the matter with it? <laughs> <laughs> why, did they breed, why did they breed it to be so short? So it wouldn't fall over. Why was it falling over? What has to do with stock strength? Potassium, manganese, and copper. They're not even paying attention to manganese and copper. They're using too much nitrogen. They were, they were using too much nitrogen, and the crop was falling over because there wasn't enough potassium. And so rather than, the, that, rather than rebalance the way they were applying the fertility, they rebred the plant. And it, so that now you have a condition where most people are, a, a huge number of people are allergic to wheat, mm -hmm. staph of life, and, and we're allergic to it because it's not the same thing. But you see these tall, old varieties that come up four or five feet tall. Mm -hmm. The heads of wheat are about that big. It's just so heavy, they're just laying over like that. But the stalk is just standing up straight if it's, if it's grown right. But, um, and we're on copper here, and that copper is the third key to stalk strength. Iron, or uh, potassium, manganese, and copper. We'll give you copper, let me share this with you. I'll give you a human nutrition uh, lesson. Copper is used to build collagen. Collagen is what gives elasticity, flexibility to your, to your skin, to your blood vessels, and uh, if you don't have adequate copper, you have 
you, it, it uh, brings on premature wrinkling of your skin because it's not, it's not elastic anymore. People who get it have aneurysms, that's because they don't have adequate copper and they're not building adequate co collagen or they're, they're building um, poorly constructed collagen and it, puts, it creates weak spots in your blood vessels. And then they, if you get too much pressure, they, they just burst through. Um, when we get to the sources, you'll see there's, oh, well, we'll get to that in just a second. Let's finish this. Copper levels, sufficiency is two parts per million. And if you're a certified organic grower, um, this is where the certifiers will not let you go past. They consider sufficiency uh, good enough. Now, some of them have, have seen and demonstrated that this is, this is not the optimum. It's just, this is the bare minimum. Two parts per million is the bare minimum. Anybody that grows berries ought to be at 10, 12, 15 parts per million copper. Um, it will eliminate your fungal diseases. Most of the fungicides they spray on plants, what are, what are they made of? Copper. Now there's a, there's, a, there's a phytotoxic reaction that happens when they use the copper hydroxides and stuff like that, but there's also a nutrition effect from the, from the copper. So rather than do risk the damage done by the phytotoxic reaction, just put it in the soil. The plant will take it up, and it'll build all the compounds that'll protect it from the fungal organisms. Um, again, we've got we're thinking from the wrong direction here on a lot of stuff. On it, so the roles of copper are part of several enzyme systems: disease resistance, moisture control, and stalk strength. And the sources are copper sulfate, 23 to 25 percent. It's those blue crystals. If anybody's seen it. The blue crystal. Um, there's actually a, a grower, a citrus grower, organic citrus grower in Florida, Uncle Matt's. Um, they have pretty high copper levels, and their 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 certifiers were harassing them about that, and telling them how to get them down, <laughs> and everything. It was all it was from all they, the previous owners of the orchards who had sprayed tons of copper fungicides. You know, it, it had built up in the soil and they had levels there, but they had no fungal problems on any of the trees. And they have some, if you ever have an opportunity to drink it or, or eat their citrus, it, it's out of this world. They, they sell it. It never even leaves Florida. Um, the other source is, uh, that's the easiest way to apply it. You're, um, you're going to apply it. Uh, there's another thing I forgot to tell you on some of these. Um, you're going to apply it. You can apply up to about 35 pounds the acre safely at any given time. Depending on what your need is, you, you need to get at least over sufficiency. And then you don't need to worry about it until all your major stuff is straightened out. And then you start pushing it. I always take mine up to at least 10 parts per million. Um, 12 to 15 is, is even better uh, because you get much healthier fruit, fruiting crops, particularly berries, on that. Yeah, um, the other source is turkey compost. Why turkey compost? Why not any compost? Turkeys are highly susceptible to aneurysms because they don't build collagen very well. And before they started supplementing copper to turkeys, they were losing 70, 75% of their birds to aneurysms. Once they started supplementing turkey to, or uh, supplementing turkey, <laughs> supplementing <laughs> copper to them, their aneurysm problem went to zero or near zero. So the upside to that for you, copper's expensive. Copper's probably one of the most expensive amendments you're going to put on. Thankfully, it's in small quantities unless you're really bad off with it. But um, if you want a source that, if you need copper and you have an access to turkey compost, 
that you can have an analysis done because I don't know if everybody's doing that anymore. They may have come up with some kind of drug that they can give them that will keep them from doing it now, but um, it's a cheaper source of copper if you have access to that. To back up really quick here, sorry, uh, on um, these are just safety factors. On manganese, you know, 200 pounds of the acre is probably the most that you should apply at one time. Uh, you can do more than that, but it, it, again, there's, there's, there's variables that have to be taken into consideration of whether you would do something like that or not. Iron is usually 400 pounds to the acre at any given time. And we already, we already did the boron. Right, I'm giving you the maximums that you should do at any given time. Yeah, it's the maximum amounts you should do at any given time. Because like you may need, for example, I've had people that need 1,000 pounds of iron or 1,000 pounds of manganese of the, of the actual material, not the actual elemental. And so you just, it, it causes too much disruption, chemical disruption in your system. You're causing disturbance whenever you're applying these materials. And so you, you want to minimize the disturbance while maximizing getting where you need to be on it. And the 35 pounds would only, it, they say you need 70 pounds of copper. Well, you're only going to apply 35 at the most at one time, or that would be the wise thing to do anyway, not, not to. Because um, sometimes, remember I was telling you about my manganese, and then all of a sudden it showed up when I got the calcium levels where they need to be? The reason you don't want to be too aggressive either is because sometimes there's things in the soil that you don't know are there because they're all locked up, and all of a sudden, you know, when the conditions get better, all of a sudden you discover you have more of something. And it's kind of like what I was talking about with the triple superphosphate, where they've got tons of this material locked up in the soil, and then all of a sudden you create better conditions, and it starts releasing back out. So you don't want it, with the trace elements, you don't want to overshoot your targets if you can avoid it. The upside, because they stick around for a long time, you just, it's, there's just not a whole lot of it utilized in the plants that's not needed. It's like a hammer or a screwdriver. If you're building a barn, um, use a hammer. Well, when you go to build another barn, you can use the same hammer. You know what I mean? You have to buy more lumber, but you have to use the same hammer. And so some of these elements, they're, they're, they're tools, they're cofactors and enzymes to, to, in order to build, build the house. And so they're not used up in the house. I mean, eventually you may wear out the hammer and you have to buy a new hammer. But Okay, deficiency symptoms. The young leaves wilted. You'll get wilting up in the, in the growing tip. The weak stem tip, which relates to that, because you're not getting the turgor that you need, the, the, the water pressure. And uh, you'll have disease pressures, a lot of fungal disease pressures if you're deficient in calcium, uh, copper. And your excess problems, root growth inhibition, and suppression of other nutrients. Remember I said, you know, sometimes the symptoms are the symptoms of another nutrient because it's being suppressed by the excess of that nutrient. And so it's not that you don't have enough of these other nutrients, you have too much of something else. And, and so that causes the problem for you. Okay, zinc. Let me cover a couple of these things before I get into my list here, since I didn't put them on there. Zinc goes as phosphate goes. They antagonize each other, and so as you raise phosphate levels to their optimum levels, you've got to raise zinc to its optimum levels. And so the recommended level is dependent on the phosphate level. And so the range would be anywhere from a minimum of six parts per million 
all the way up to 20 parts per million would be the max that you really want to go to. If, if you have over that and there's everything else is going good, you're still going to grow stuff. The ranges I'm giving you are the optimum ranges. And so if, if you find out, like I was looking, who's general? I was looking at, we were looking at soil reports last night, and the, the zinc levels are way too high on a lot of them. But so are the phosphate levels. Somebody got, somebody got carried away. When I, do, when I do soil recommendations for growers, I can always <coughs> tell what their pet fertilizers are because it always shows up on the soil reports. If they're gung-ho about the phosphate fertilizers, they're always over the top with them. If they're gung-ho about the potassium fertilizers or the nitrogen fertilizers, you can, you can see it in the, in the soil test. But, but in this particular case, the phosphate levels are really high. The zinc levels being that high are good in relation to the phosphate, but not good in relation to other nutrients. So it's not that you're not going to grow anything. You're going to be able to grow something. And, you know, depending on how balanced everything is, the better, better you'll be able to grow it. So don't anybody go out here and say, oh, I, you know, my stuff's so messed up, I can't do, I can't do anything. Now, somebody asked me one time, well, where do I start? And I said, the Bible, says go, the Bible says to break up your fallow ground. Go out and dig the soil and find out what his condition is. So um, don't be discouraged because if we, if, if we had to have everything right before we could bear any fruit, there wouldn't be any fruit bearing going on. So, um, The maximum level on this, again, is about 35 pounds. And on this one, it's because sometimes it takes both copper and, and zinc, it takes a couple years for it to fully express. And so you might do a set test the next year, and it's not quite all the way there. Well, you've got to just kind of hold on for a little bit and see where, where it is. Or the following year, you can go ahead and see how much expressed right off the bat, and then you can see, well, how much more did I need to apply and apply some more. Um, okay, the rolls. Let's see, I got that. Oh, yeah, like I said, I think I covered it. The, r the range is um, 6 to 20 pounds. Now, there's a book that I've recommended to people called The Ideal Soil. If some of you have that book. Um, one of the cautions I want to put him in about that book is they, uh, he continues to tie it as a ratio. In other words, what, so much percentage, I think it's 100 to 1 or something like that, that he recommends as a ratio. That works okay as long as you're in the optimum ranges, but if you keep going with that, you're now going to begin interfering with other nutrients. Zinc has to, both of those two have to cut off at a certain point. And uh, if you were to follow that ratio, you would be way above where you should be in, in uh, zinc before you cut off. Okay, the roles. Part of many enzyme systems, water use efficiency. Potassium and zinc are the poor man's for irrigation. Because wa uh, potassium and zinc both provide water use efficiency in the plant. The plant is efficiently using the water that is available to it, and so you get better use of the water you have. So if you're, if you're limited in your water resources, you want to be sure for sure that you have optimum zinc and, and potassium levels in the soil for that. Essential for non-symbiotic nitrogen-fixing azotobacters. Those are the free-living nitrogen fixers in the soil, not the symbiotic ones, the ones you would inoculate your legumes with, but these are free-living nitrogen fixers. How did you, how did you, did you ever wonder how the nature around us stays green when nobody applies any nitrogen to it? It's because there's organisms in the soil, the blue-green algaes, the, the free-living nitrogen fixers, the bacterias, and, the, and the, the symbiotic ones. But if you're not growing legumes, 
sometimes you'll see in a, in a pasture something, that's why it's often has some legumes growing there, some grasses growing there, and, and you're cultivating all of these nitrogen fixers, not just, not just one type of them. But, um, and like I said, this is the ultimate place to get as, as a grower, not to have to apply nitrogen, but allow the biology and the soil to do everything that it can for you. That's the objective, is to get it to do everything it can for you. The sources are zinc sulfate, 36%. Sometimes it comes out as a 35.5% zinc. Again, it's the hydrated sulfate form that's the most available. There is an oxysulfate on this one. Um, it seems to work okay in, okay in most cases. And, uh, and I would recommend it if it's the only thing that you have, but if you have the sulfate, actual sulfate form. What they call, you have to be careful again, and as Sean was mentioning, you have to make sure what you're getting because there are materials that are called zinc oxysulfates, and all they are is uh, zinc, or you could add what, any one of the other metals. They're zinc oxide with some elemental sulfur put in. And it's a very small percentage of the, of the, the, uh, the metal and a large, larger percentage of the sulfate. But it, it depends on the biology in the soil for it to work. And because people are terrified of these trace elements, particularly in the organic certification realm, um, that's, this is an organic uh, supply house I know of that sells these oxides with sulfur added to them because they're afraid to apply too much of these, these trace metals at one time. And so that's how they offer them in that form. But they're not the best form to, to, to apply them in. If that's all you have available to you, you can get there eventually doing that kind of thing. But um, this is much more effective source for what you have to pay for it. The deficiency symptoms, necrotic spots in the older leaves. Zinc is mobile, so you're, you'll have dead spots, dead tissue in the older leaves. Whitish color sometimes in the leaves on corn, you'll see it'll, it'll get a whitish color to the, the, uh, the monocots tend to have that more of that whitish color to them, the dicots more of the necrotic dead spots in the leaves. And excesses, induced deficiencies. If you've got too much zinc and not enough phosphate, it'll suppress it and you won't get enough phosphate. Uh, it, it goes vice versa that way. It can also suppress copper if you have too much of it. So if you're in a situation where you have low copper levels and excessive zinc levels, you're gonna have disease pressure because you're not getting, your, your copper is not active. And poor, so poor photosynthesis is also resulting because it interferes with the, uh, the other metals that are necessary for the production of the chlorophyll molecule that does the photosynthesis. Okay, molybdenum. Molybdenum. Trying to figure out if we what time we're supposed to stop. We started at 9.15 or 9.30, okay. So we're, let me just finish up molybdenum and we'll stop for our break. Molybdenum is uh, required at only one part per million, one to two parts per million, one part per million is adequate. That's two pounds in an entire two million pound plow layer of molybdenum. But without molybdenum, you're not going to have those, those nitrogen fixers functioning, even the symbiotic ones that you inoculate. If you inoculate with it and you don't have adequate molybdenum there, you're not getting anywhere, anywhere near the, um, the benefit from that, that symbiotic relationship. So it's needed by nitrogen fixing bacteria. It's also needed by the, the uh, free living ones. It's required to make protein. This is one 
thing with the blueberry growers, again, that, that they, I explained to them why blueberries supposedly have to use ammonium nitrogen because they, they can't process nitrate nitrogen properly. Well, it requires molybdenum to process, process nitrate nitrogen properly. At a pH of 5, molybdenum is totally tied up if it's even available. And so it's impossible for the plant to be able to, to process nitrate nitrogen if it doesn't have the molybdenum because if you're, you're growing the plant at a pH of 5. And so that's another one where I explained to the growers, I said, you bring your, your, your fertility to a complete and balanced state, make sure you have the molybdenum there, and that plant will use both of them. You don't, have to, you don't have to make sure that you're just only generating an ammonium nitrogen and an acid situation will stay ammonium for a longer time because the, the uh, bacteria that convert it to nitrate are not very functional. Uh, the sources, sodium molybdate, 39%. There's also an ammonium molybdate, molybdate and I think it's a little bit higher analysis than that, but it's not as commonly available. Um, this material you're going to put on at seven and a half, if you need it, you're going to put it on at seven and a half ounces to the acre. Seven and a half ounces to the acre. But if you need it, you better put it on. That's going to get you, that's going to get you about uh, a tenth, that's going to get you about a tenth, or two tenths of a pound of molybdenum at any one time you're applying. But it is, ex uh, yeah, go ahead. It's good to apply it as a foliar. You can apply it as a you can, you can apply it as a foliar, but it's better if you apply it to the soil because that's where it's going to be utilized um, primarily. Well, it will be used in the plant too. If you if you can spread seven and a half ounces evenly as a pellet, you show me how to do it. No. <laughs> um, no, you can foliar. It's, it's citrus is very sensitive to molybdenum deficiency, and so they foliar apply it. Sprayed on the plant, oh. sprayed on the surface of the plant, the leaves and everything. Um, molybdenum, it, you, it, it can be very toxic. It can tie up copper, so you you should never apply molybdenum until you know you have your copper at at least sufficiency levels because it'll tie it up. And if you're raising livestock <coughs> or you're feeding yourself off it, it just might kill you because it, it'll prevent you from getting the copper that you need because uh, it'll tie it up. So a lot of times I don't even get to this with people until they've got everything else kind of going in line and then we start talking about this. Okay, deficiency symptoms are what they call, the best one that you can tell is like whiptail in, in brassicas where the leaves on the brassica leaves get this long, narrow, kind of curled look to them. Um, it's not very easily identifiable in a lot of other plants. And the excess will co is copper tie-up. It'll tie up copper and not make it available. Even at two pounds in a two million pound plow layer, it'll tie it up if the copper's not there. Okay, we need to take a break here. We're a little bit behind on the break. So if we can just take about 10 minutes, then we'll get to the This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.